0: That's heritageradio.network.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, open year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. Hi. I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast
2: Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer.
1: Hi, I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet in 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week's theme is youth. We'll have a report on how migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border are being housed and fed. Right now, what we're very worried about is just the influx of kids created by this zero-tolerance policy. We'll also look into a program that's ensuring free summer meals for kids are only a text message away. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid who may not have that safety net of school meals. We discover a new home economics curriculum.
2: I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs. I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves.
1: And we meet a teen chef who's talked his way into several of New York's top kitchens.
2: I never try and be, like, annoying about it, but I really want to get my foot in the door.
1: Tune in to this week's episode of Meet in Three, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. As you may have heard, just before the episode, that was in fact my daughter Moxie talking about Heritage Radio and our fundraiser, our membership drive this summer. So please donate. Uh, we have 35 plus weekly shows here on the station, and there's that means there are thousands and thousands. I think we've done over 10,000 episodes that you can listen to. So you know, not only can you listen every single day to a different show, um, but you know, please think about donating to keep us on the air. I wanted to mention an event I have going on here in Brooklyn tomorrow, July 17th. Please join me and my fellow HRN host, Michael Harlan Turkel, who hosts the food scene, for an event called Sumo Stew. We have done Sumo Stew now, I don't know, more than 20 times. Uh, It's an extravaganza of food, drink, and of course, round after round of sumo wrestling coming to you as close to live as possible from Japan. You can check out more at sumostew.com. Today's theme of Feast Your Ears is Hamaris Americanus. How did this peasant food become regarded as such a delicacy? When we see lobster on the menu of a restaurant with cloth napkins, it seems so decadent, and a premium delicacy. Yet lobster was once the food of peasants and prisoners, reported to have been so prevalent on the Maine coastline that at low tide you could just scoop them off the beach. They look like giant bugs and they live on the bottom of the sea in the cool waters off the coast of New England and Maritime Canada. A thriving fishery in Maine that supports an economy and is largely self-governed is a model of sustainable fisheries. We've seen in recent years a proliferation of lobster in restaurants all over, serving lobster rolls in a variety of preparations, and I'll give you my favorite version later in the episode. But there's an absolutely thriving business in New York's Chelsea Market where the lobster place serves thousands, I'm guessing, of steamed lobsters every day to tourists and locals alike who pick and slurp the meat from the shells in what is about as far from a fine dining experience as I can imagine. But the succulence of the meat and a sense of decadence drives them to it in droves. Steamed is the way I eat lobster most often, though in recent years I have taken to splitting them in half and grilling them, which, if you don't overcook them, is a spectacular way to go. It's very hard to eat lobster from the shell and not get juice all over yourself, and as such, I often chuckle when I see whole lobster on the menu of fancier restaurants and see folks in fine clothes trying to carefully take apart a claw to get to the meat. It's much more fun in my opinion to gather around a table covered in old newspaper and just tear into them I have a process personally by which I eat them. That's been pretty much the same since I was a kid My dad thought it was cute that at age five or six. I would order a lobster in a restaurant He wouldn't order an entree because invariably I wouldn't finish it and he'd have a soup or a salad and then finish my lobster At about age nine. I ordered a lobster and proceeded to eat the whole thing He had to order something else from that day on my guests today represent two pieces of the supply chain that bring these delicious, and let's face it, weird-looking food to our tables. Chef Jimmy Papadopoulos is the man behind Belmore in Chicago, and cooks lobster, among other things, all the time. And lobsterman Chris Welch, who's been on the water hauling traps since he was in first grade, who goes out every day, all year round, to pull them up, I guess except today, because you're in Brooklyn. Thanks, guys, for joining me. I oh, know, a pleasure to have us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me.
3: So... Uh, Chris you know you have been on the water for like two and a half decades then
4: yeah so um a lot of people I'm 30 now and uh it's hard for a lot of people to fathom that I've been doing this since I was six or seven years old I started going like grandfather um and I took his business over when he
3: no longer could do it and I've uh, been at it ever since it's a way of life so pretty much, and you fish year-round.
4: That's right. Okay. Yep. So in the wintertime, we go on the days that the weather will allow us. Sure. And uh, this time of year, we fish pretty much six days a week. In uh, June, July, and August, we can't fish on Sundays. That's a state rule. Hmm. And um, so we get a day to spend with our family.
3: Oh, that's, that's nice. So, uh, you know, what does a normal day look like? I mean, I imagine you're up before dawn.
4: Yeah, most days I start not crazy early, but I get up around 345, 4 o'clock. Um, I
3: think to a lot of us, we would look at that and say, that's pretty crazy early. I would imagine <laughs> I would imagine that Jimmy's sometimes leaving the kitchen about 3.45 a.m. Bedtime for me is night. W- yeah. 1,
2: 2 in the
4: morning. Yeah. So. <laughs> so I'll get up uh, this time of year. We're leaving the dock around 5. We have a little bit shorter ride to our gear this time of year because we're fishing more inshore. And we get to see a sunrise nearly every day. It makes your job uh, just a little bit better.
3: Yeah, I mean, the coast of Maine um, is so beautiful that I, I imagine that that's a really nice highlight.
4: Yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, And then we'll fish either hauling, you know, we can have 800 traps in the state of Maine. That's what each lobster fisherman is allowed to fish up to. And I usually do it in a three-day rotation and a two-day rotation if need be. So we'll fish through, and this time of year we're home by one two o'clock in the afternoon Got it. whereas in the fall we're fishing a little further offshore we usually leave in the dark and come home in the dark
3: right right and then are you holding your do you, when you bring the lobsters back in are you selling them immediately at the dock or are you holding them and selling them based on you know based on need and based on the market so I sell every day um, it's a fresh
4: caught lobster it's hand selected day boats we go out we catch what we catch that day when I come in I sell them to a retailer or wholesaler, I guess you could call it, and they distribute them to different places. Like we're in a process now of trying to figure out how to get them to Jimmy, for right, me. Sure. <laughs> and uh, so every day that we go, they're fresh caught, hand picked, day boats, and that's how it
3: is. So. And, and you know, I mean, I, I would imagine most people who are listening probably know this, but, I mean, lobster generally is distributed live That's in right. this country. Right. Um, there are places and people who are picking it and freezing it or, you know, that kind of thing, or even frozen fresh. I've seen now mm-hmm. uh, greenhead lobster. I think they're out of uh, Deer Isle maybe uh, up that way, but they're now distributing a fresh frozen lobster tails and claw meat. Yeah, I don't, I don't know a lot about that end of the business. I'm
4: still trying to learn and pick up yeah. on it. So there's a, there's a lot more for me to figure out. But as for what we do, we sell a live product every single day. Yeah.
3: So Jimmy, you are from Illinois. Yeah. You're a chef in Chicago. Correct. Uh, You know, tell me about your relationship to lobster.
2: So born and raised, um, you know, in the center of the nation outside of Chicago, you don't really get exposed to the coast much. You don't get exposed to it. But um, growing up as a kid, I remember thumbing through my mom's, um, you know, old frugal gourmet cookbooks. And I remember seeing like, you know, bright red lobsters on tables and stuff. And for us out there, you know, there wasn't a lot of seafood restaurants, but growing up, we'd go to Red Lobster every once in a while. And I remember maybe being seven, eight years old and marveling at the tank filled with the lobsters. Yeah. And, you know, you see that growing up. And then when I became a chef, um, my very first introduction actually working with it was at a hotel. We had this pasta dish that would sell like crazy. But we'd bring in live, live, live main lobsters and we would clean them, like, you know, just because constantly it was a pasta dish. So for me, um, you, know, you know, working with lobster is something that's, that's kind of come throughout my career. But be able to get out on a boat with Chris and see the entire experience and where, where it actually comes from, is something that you know was on my bucket list, pretty much. Sure, you know to go eat a lobster straight out of the ocean. Yeah. Um. So this this whole experience, you know, with the trap at the table thing was just just mind numbingly awesome. So,
3: and then you know, do you feel now that you are able to take that experience and translate that to the table and to the diners at Belmore?
2: Hundred percent. And we Chris and I were talking. we how do I how do I get this? You know, a lot of times you call your seafood company in the middle of the country, in Chicago. You know, in Chicago, there's multiple seafood distributors and companies, and like. Like a, to Chris's point, he is a sole proprietor of his ship, of his you know of his boat. He brings his lobster in, sells it to market, and then who knows where it goes. Right. So f- figuring out that chain and and how to get Chris's lobster yeah. in my restaurant would be something that would be you know amazing. It's it's a it's a you you literally can say I was on this man's boat pulling traps with him, pulling lobsters right out of the cold waters of Maine, and it's here to serve to you. So I mean that's that's something that um, is exciting as yeah, well. Yeah,
3: and the ability then to connect that diner with Chris and with the process and with the with the fishery I mean I think it's you know the more you know one of the the things I think that is so uh, interesting in food right at this moment is that we do have access to knowing these stories and understanding these stories 10 15 years ago you know you might have been able to ask some people about it but it would be would have been very hard to find the information right. or to find the fishermen from if you were a chef in Chicago and
2: still today even in Chicago I mean we know who we're, where we're getting corn from I know who we're buying turnips from up there um, who my beef comes from who my chicken comes from but a lot of the times fish tend to be you know seafood in in particular tends to be a little bit of a lost kind of connection for us right so to be able to pick something like lobster and say you know you know this source is is quite amazing so yeah we're almost trying to brand
4: it as a trap to table so it's something that um if you can put a face on where it's coming from a lot of people really enjoy that i think it's similar to the uh you know, farm to table type. Of course. Thing. Yeah. So it's um it's a it's a pretty cool opportunity that we're trying to get in on right now. So
3: well and I, I think understanding too that you know that, that fish is you know, I feel like fish is in this weird moment where there is you know so much press about like the bad practices in fishing Correct. and the, and consumers are becoming more aware people are asking where their beef is coming from where their where their turnips where their corn whether it's gmo all of this stuff and they're starting to ask those questions about fish and so it is so important to recognize that you know sustainable and responsible fishing is not new but, and that there are places that are doing it, but it's a matter of really understanding where that's coming from. I mean, so, you know, Chris, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And as a, as a fisherman, you know, there are lobsters up and down the coast. I mean, as far south as Long Island and even, you know, or Jersey even, and then all the way up into Canada. And each state kind of has different regulations. But as I understand it, Maine is one of the uh, most carefully regulated fisheries and it's really regulated by the, by the lobstermen.
4: So one thing that's really amazing about our industry is years ago our forefathers I guess you could call them the, the gentlemen that came along before us realized that if we kept keeping nearly everything they wouldn't last. Yeah. So what they did is they put in some stuff, simple things like they put a, a we have a measure or some people call it a gauge and we every lobster we come at gets measured and we have an oversize and an undersize so if the shell is under three and a quarter inches, it goes back in the ocean to grow, to um, you know maybe catch another day. And on the same hand, if it's over five inches, it goes back and that's to kind of protect the breeding stock. Another yeah. thing we do is on the females, we put a notch in one of their flippers. And what that does, is that tells the next lobsterman or me next time I catch it, that that lobster is able to be an egg bearing lobster. So that's protecting our breeding stock. Um, we do other things like we have escape vents in the traps, which gives the lobsters, the small lobsters, a chance to come and go as they please. They come in, they eat, and they leave. Um, and there's there's all kinds of things we've done like that. Uh, we have a number of traps we can fish up to. There's no more than that. Every right. lobsterman's even in that yep. thing. And uh, so those are some of the sustainable practices that we do. And you can't really get a good appreciation for it until you see it. So I was explaining. To Jimmy, and he, it was, I think, mind blowing for him to see I, how yeah. many go back into the ocean Right.
2: to catch I was another day. Truthfully, blown away. I mean, we got out there, and you'd see these traps come up, and you know, you start hauling a couple, maybe one has five in, them, and then you get this this trap that comes up, and there's 25 lobsters teeming in there, right. and literally going through engaging each ones and finding ones that have notches in their tails, you know, and you're like, oh well, that's a beautiful lobster, but that one goes back because she's an egg bearing, right? And that that. You think of sustainability, and you think of how hard these guys' jobs are, and then look at these traps and what they actually pull up. You know they're keeping five percent of what they're catching, mm, wow. maybe maybe at max. Is
4: that a good? Yeah, there's times of the year when, um, you know, coming right up when the new shells start to come out after they've molted, we, we may catch ten or twelve to a trap and get to keep them all. Right. But um, in the spring and and when the when the smaller lobsters are around before they begin their molt process. There's times you can have 25 or 30 in a trap and not keep a one, Hmm. um, which is, is, you know, it's a good thing. So we're looking for those different things um, to sustain the industry, to put them back in, to keep things going. And these are obviously working because in the 80s, um, we caught maybe 30 million pounds a year. In the last few years, we've caught around 100 to 120 million pounds. So. Something right. we're doing is, has been working.
3: And I think and it's it's really important to, to also, like, to note that that is not because the technology of the catching has gotten better. Right, right. right. It's not like in some fisheries where it's practices. we've gotten better and we're just, like, tearing everything out of the ocean. It's practices to manage that So fishery. very little
4: has changed. I mean, we used to use wooden lobster traps, right. and we've moved into uh, wire lobster traps, and maybe a lot of people used to use a little bit smaller traps. Now they're using bigger. Um, and I think the ideas in those are just strictly the more room in the trap, the more tra- lobsters that they yeah. can hold. Yeah. But for the numbers to you know continuously grow, continuously look good, um, yeah. we're in a good spot. Yeah, I mean, I,
3: I even read one one report that uh, that said the first time I think it was probably in like the 80s, maybe in the early 90s, that they sent down a video camera to look at a lobster trap. They actually were amazed that lobsters were actually not really getting trapped. Yeah, Like yeah. They were kind of it moving, and going, moving yeah. in and out, and then when you pulled it up, it just with however many happened to be in there at the moment. But, I tell uh,
4: <laughs> I tell people all the time. I said we catch what's in there when we haul it. Right, um, it's a revolving door. I mean, yeah. we try to make it as efficient as we can to keep everything in there that crawls in, but if. If they want to leave, they they more or less can. <laughs> right, I mean, they and come in, get their out. free meal, and they go.
3: Yeah, <laughs> well, and so in that way, it's almost like I hadn't ever thought about it until you just mentioned that and mentioned that there's the sort of escape for the smaller lobsters. I mean, it is, it is almost in a way uh, like a, a cross between both trapping and ranching. And farming, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, the, the lobstermen are providing a food source to keep the lobsters and to keep the stocks going, um, which I think is really, you know.
4: What seems to be a popular question amongst people my age is when you haven't seen them in a while, they say, what do you do for a living? I just tell them when I'm, I'm an
3: ocean farmer Yeah.
4: and just let them think <laughs> on it for a while.
3: <laughs> um, what else do you find in the traps? I mean, there's got to be bycatch, right? Other oh, things get in there. Yeah,
4: once in a while we will catch things. We catch a lot of crabs. Sure. Tell um, them about the Jonah crabs. What and, was the and fish things. that we caught that that um, I, I caught? We caught a small mud hake. Okay, uh, he had swum his way in there and.
2: Uh, and when, so I was I was at the stern of the boat, which is the back of the boat for those of you who are not uh, boat savvy. Now to mind you, Jimmy's taking this all in and this is my first time on a lot. I don't know what, So anyways, I'm at the back of the boat. He's and, having quite a time. and I'm, I'm back there and I'm talking to his stern man and we're, we're talking and then all of a sudden Chris goes he goes, "Hey, Jimmy, and I look up and there's this fish maybe you know 20 inches flying and flopping in the air, coming my way. <laughs> live fish and I, I put my hands up and my face you know face puckered up and thankfully I caught the fish. And they were all cracking. We f- up. We friendly
4: re- refer to that as a um, a hake toss. Yeah. <laughs> so it's usually a surprise event. Um, sometimes we'll catch <laughs> sea robins, which is like a, a scalpin. Some people call yeah. them too. They're a little bit different. Um, but most of the time, you catch lobsters and um, and some crabs and things like that. But for the for the main part, yeah. it's pretty efficient, and we don't see a ton of everything else. So it's and do nice you and,
3: and do you keep it? I mean, are the crabs the crabs have any value back we at can, the dock? Do you we keep can those keep as well?
4: them. Um, our license allows us to in our area we don't have much of a market for them and when the lobsters are are hot and heavy we don't see any crabs because uh, um, they're know probably because the lobsters yeah are, i don't know. know if they don't get along or what <laughs> i haven't talked to them about it yeah. but um, it just seems to they don't usually come together i mean yeah. in those
2: 20 traps we pulled when we went out we, we found what two crab maybe that yeah was two it. or three so it was two crab yeah. two fish so and that was you know and this was a very slow time of year too right. so right so things for us are really about to start picking up. I suspect
4: when we go home, we'll be right in the thick of things,
3: okay.
4: and uh, the new shell season will be in full swing. So it'll be a, a great time. That's my favorite time of year. So
3: Cool. So let's talk a little bit about that. So you know, in uh, having spent a bunch of time in Maine, uh, you know, there's a very big distinction between a hard shell and a new shell. And both in price when you go to buy it and in how you have to open it, the hard shell lobster, the, as, as the name would suggest, the shell is incredibly hard. I mean, you need a hammer sometimes or like a heavy set of nutcrackers, or, you know, vice grips to crack them open. Uh, and new shells often, if they're really new, you can just tear them apart with your fingers.
4: Yeah, that makes for ease of eating. I yeah. mean, uh, there's a lot of things different here. So well, how a lobster grows is a molting process. The lobster will grow uh, inside his old shell. And once he gets to the point where that shell on the inside is too big for the one on the outside, he goes into a molting process. So the line down the center of the, the carapace, which is the main shell, will actually crack open, oh, wow. and the lobster will crawl his way out. Um, when they do this, they are super, super soft. Like, you can't even pick them up. They're almost run through your fingers. Now, from what I understand, they'll crawl out of their shell, and they'll actually eat their old shell. Um, it helps them strengthen up and give them to the next thing. So in that same process... Their meat is no longer cramped tightly into that shell. They're in a new shell. They have a little bit of room to expand. There's some more room in there for some juices mm-hmm. and uh, the sweetness. So you get a little bit different textured meat, uh, which I think is a lot sweeter. It has a, a better texture to me. It's not as maybe not chewy, but sure. I, I don't know how to it. Not as explain. dense. I mean, yeah, in dense. From
2: in my dense. In my opinion, this is my first time ever experiencing new shell. I've heard about it, and I've never actually had it, but being in Maine and experiencing it firsthand, the one thing that I noted that was s- s- stark difference was the sweetness of the lobster and as well as the texture, texturally. Yeah. And you could imagine the lobster literally just shed his old shell, and he's growing into a new one. Right. So the meat is going through that growth period, and you could literally yeah. feel the texture change. Um, You know, sometimes you eat, like, a a mature hard lobster, and they're they're still sweet. They're still delicious, but it's got a firmer, more springy texture to it, correct? And then when you eat a new shell, you'll feel this extremely just tender, sweet lobster meat. So it was very, um, you know, it was amazing. When I grabbed one, you know, Chris told me, he's like, oh, you know, the shells are softer. And I didn't realize how soft they were. And I pinched the claw with just maybe, like, like a medium pressure at all, like, you know, something that you barely feel... And I crack the shell. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, crap, I cracked the shell. And he's yeah. like, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Just let's cook them. <laughs> so we
4: see a lot of them, I mean, every day. So the thing of it is, is they have such a difference. Like when you cook them, they're different colors. I mean, they come out, the, the old shells or hard shells look a little bit, um, darker. a little bit rougher. You know, yeah. they've they've lived a the life on the bottom and they've dragged around. They get a little scars on their shells and a little darker. Whereas when you cook a new shell, that comes out, it's bright red. It's, uh it's, I I say it's a beautiful looking lobster, but when they come up in the traps, we can spot them instantly. Um, just the color, it's a robust, yeah. bright. Underneath is like an orange. Their top is just vibrant. Uh, they're a, you know, there's yeah. there's something to see. Yeah, you can see them right here on the table too. I mean, we brought you can see the difference between the shells. Yeah, so we brought some some uh, old shells and some new shells here to kind of do a, a sample on the different taste. Awesome. Um, well, well, who doesn't like to have lobster? I, I'm
3: not going to say no. Well, we'll take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors, and when we come back, we can we can tell you all about how great it tastes. You can listen to us eat it. <laughs>
1: is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays year-round. On Thursday, August 23rd, Brooklyn Botanic Garden will host the Beer and Bocce Benefit, a -a one-of-a-kind garden party featuring lawn games, live music, and unlimited beer tastings by some of Brooklyn's top beer makers. Proceeds from the Beer and Bocce Benefit provide essential support for the garden's educational and community programs. And mark your calendars for the annual Chili Pepper Festival on Saturday, September 29th. New York's hottest fall tradition will set the garden ablaze with scorching bands from around the world, dozens of fiery food artisans, and hours of chili chocolate debauchery. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org.
3: Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenbloom and just tuning in today, I've got Chef Jimmy Papadopoulos from Belmore in Chicago with me, and lobsterman Chris Welch, who's from Kennebunk, Maine, and uh, we're talking all about lobster. We're talking about eating lobster, we're talking about catching lobster, so uh, tell me about what we have here on the table. We've got two lobsters, and we've got some meat to taste, right? So what we've
4: done, we brought an old-shell lobster and a new-shell lobster. Now, they're very different, but they're, they're very the same. So the new shell, he'd crawled out of his old shell. He'd uh, molted in the process, left his old shell behind. And now he's uh, a brighter-looking lobster. He, he has a sweet taste. So on one side, we have some of the old shell meat to try and the new shell meat, yeah. um, just to kind of give you a, a free sample for one, but also <laughs> a chance to taste the texture difference right in front of you and the flavor as well. Awesome. Right. So hey, I'll, you, I'll pass a little out yeah, to you. Thank you. And now that's, you're that's you're referring
3: you're referring to them as as he are these both in fact male lobsters? Uh, i
4: actually looking at it right now. There's probably one of each. Without flipping them over. So, um, when you turn them over here. We taught Jimmy when he was a lobster with us. I'm wondering if he remembers. Maybe I can he tell can you right of, now. Okay? So <laughs> maybe the, he can point the, it the out. The new
2: shell lobster on the right, you can tell right up here with these two flippers. Yep. They're a little bit thicker and firmer. That's a male. Yep. Okay, And then over here, the larger hard shell, the older hard shell, she has much thinner ones, so that's going to be a female.
3: Got it. Yeah, so, so to, to tell everybody out there, when you turn the lobster over, the little flipperettes that are closest to the body... Uh, on the underside of the tail, uh, like Jimmy said, if they're if they're harder uh, and a little more pointy, then it's a male lobster. And if they're softer, then it's a female lobster. But this obviously is a female who has not been part of the breeding stock yet. Yes, yeah, so uh, she because she, her tail wasn't notched and she was able to be
4: caught. That's right. or if she was, um she was never caught during right. that time. Right, right, So what I had forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about protecting our breeding stock, if that lobster comes up covered in eggs or in any eggs at all, one even, we are asked by the state of Maine or asked by the fishermen before us to put these in to make a notch in the first flipper in from the right side. The second flipper in from the right side. Now if that comes up in the trap and there's anything wrong with that flipper, I put the lobster back in the ocean for next time. Yep. Or and that'll grow out over time as, as that lobster molts and sheds its shell oh, and changes. Sure. The damage it'll eventually grow, it grow out. Yeah. So that lobster is not damaged for life. It's it's actually protecting that lobster's life for the time sure. being. So this one here um, has not molted this year and it uh it was not egg bearing at any time when someone caught it and was able to see that it was egg bearing.
3: Right. So so Jimmy, you know, since we're tasting these, uh, you know, these lobsters, I mean I you know, the, the hard shell, like you said, is like a little bit more like springy and dense. Right. Um and, right. and the new shell is a little bit sweeter. I mean it definitely right. has like that, you know, the, the meat is softer.
2: Right. And if you think about it, I mean just, just from a standpoint of the lobster growing, going through a growth spurt basically, mm-hmm. it's gonna be much more tender. Um, The meat has a a much sweeter flavor to it, and it still has the same salinity and that same lobster quality you get of any other main lobster, whether it's a hard shell. But the new shells, in in specifically their textures is was what I find super remarkable.
3: Yeah, so do you have different dishes then that you would like if you you know, if you're getting in lobsters, you know, from Chris and and you're getting hard shells, would you use those for a different dish than the absolutely. New
2: shells? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean you look at the two of them and you, you think of the if you think of something like a new shell lobster, I'd want something much more nuanced and delicate to kind of showcase that beautiful texture and sweetness. Um, you know, and you could either way, whether you're serving a new shell or a hard shell man lobster, but the new shells in particular um, I feel, in my, my opinion, just, just having tasted them, I think they would lend amazing to getting a little bit of a char on the grill, mm. you know, kissing yeah. them on, a, on over some hardwood charcoal so you get the flavor, as well as a little bit of texture on the ex- exterior of the lobster to kind of counterbalance that beautiful softness. Sure. Um, so for me, it's just, and, and what I loved about the new shell is the sweetness. Yeah. The flavor is intense. It's very sweet, very full lobster flavor. Yeah. So the,
4: the thing too with the new shell is with there being a little bit of extra room in the shell that hasn't grown into, you've, they've built their own brine so a lot of times when people will pick these lobsters they'll suck the juice right out of the shells because it is such a sweet flavorful succulent taste yeah and it uh a lot of times the people that are you know shelling these lobsters or picking them get the best right out of them before they share (laughs) with anybody else right so
3: i definitely yeah so earlier i mentioned like when i was a kid i definitely had a process for eating lobster and i definitely you know for a long time always said i would i really preferred eating lobster in maine You know, have friends and acquaintances who are lobstermen, so like just go down to the dock and buy it when they're coming in. Or last year, a friend of mine took me out with my kids, and that was a really great experience. The kids got to see the lobsters coming right out of the trap. Um, But I would always, always, and I'm curious to hear from you, Chris, like how you grew up eating them. I would always eat the claws first, and then I would eat the tail, and then I would suck all the meat out of the legs, and then I would take the meat out of the body. That was always my (laughs) process. So, um, growing up. We didn't eat
4: a lot of lobsters. I fished with my grandfather, and he just well, you had don't a, want to get high on your own. He supply, had an, right? he had an old not. adage that uh, he didn't want to eat his profit. Yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> and he wasn't a huge uh, seafood fan. Period. Um, but I've always eaten them right out of the shell. I mean, that's the traditional main way. You crack yeah. them and you eat them. Yep. Uh, no butter, no anything, just the way they are. So, but now when we have lobsters at home a little more, my wife loves to have a lobster roll. So a lot of times I'll pick them out for and uh, eat all the knuckles, which drives her crazy because that's her favorite part, but (laughs) that's the reward for doing all the work. And uh, put them into a lobster roll with a little bit of mayonnaise and maybe some butter and uh, just eat them up. I mean, that's the... Simple, I mean, a lobster roll main is way. such
3: a good. I mean, a lobster roll is like to me is like the most delicious sandwich of summer, oh.
2: and it's the perfect expression for the lobster. Yeah. You know I mean, that said, it, it, it's nothing else. It's unadulterated. It's delicious. Yeah. It's like a lot of people like
4: fresh like cucumber and tomato sandwiches. I mean, this is main as that gets. That's a
3: really that that's a really good way to really good way to describe it. The thing that I also find amazing is is the proliferation of that. Right. I mean, now you see lobster rolls at McDonald's. You see <laughs> lobster rolls. I mean, there's you know I think there's at least three lobster rolls specific food companies in New York City Right. that didn't ever used to exist in right. the past. I mean, in the past, it was a product that really, if you wanted a lobster roll, you had to at least get as far north as Connecticut before <laughs> that was even like an option. <laughs> so having
4: grown up in Maine and uh, I live a simple way of life, and when I cook, it's pretty simple, but uh, I don't know if might take Jimmy offhand here, but <laughs> last couple weeks ago when we cooked together, or he did all the cooking and I ate the lobster meat, he made a, a dish where he'd season the lobsters, and it was a tempura, I believe. Well, yeah, it was uh, it was fried. Yeah, and
2: it, it's a tempura fried lobster. And I, uh,
4: I'd never had lobster that way, and I kind of chuckled. I'm like, ah, man, what's he going to do with the lobster? And I couldn't believe it. The <laughs>
2: flavor was unbelievable. He might be able to tell you a little more about what we did that day. It was a real simple batter. It was rice flour, a little bit of cornstarch, and we whisked in soda water. It's a real simple you know, battered lobster, but when you fry it, it gets ultra crispy, and you get that mm. beautiful light fry on it. And, um with this sweet tender lobster meat on the inside it kind of just was like a no-brainer like little popcorn nuggets of delicious fried lobster um we served it with like a, a chive mayonnaise and i dusted it with a dried black lime so we had a little fun with flavors and did something but essentially i mean it's it's acidity it's a creamy fatty aioli yeah. and delicious fried sweet lobster and uh, we ate it with a nice salad with avocados and tomatoes and fun stuff but um it was an amazing meal because we ate right literally on the harbor like we're yeah. right there i mean you couldn't
4: the, you couldn't beat beat the place we had we well, you know watched the sunset over the harbor we ate the product that we worked so hard to catch that day <laughs> yep. yeah. and uh jimmy had quite the experience up there in maine hopefully we'll have him back again soon <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh I, do you uh i mean you know i'm curious to know jimmy if you would ever do this in in chicago and, and chris if you do it it's sort of traditional like maine like clam bake lobster bake on the beach i mean i have memories as a kid of at least once a year we would always go out you know below the high tide line we dig a hole Build a fire in there, let the coals get hot and cover it in seaweed and then pack lobsters, the clams, corn in there and then cover it and leave it under you know, leave it under there. Basically we would start as the tide was going out and you had to kind of like get a it all out of there before, before, before could... the tide got back up to extinguish the fire. Right. So I
4: had told Jimmy when he when he comes back to visit, hopefully we can do that, you know, yeah. put the potatoes and the clams and the corn and, and mussels or whatever and and the lobster on top. Yeah. And uh, I think that'd give him a little bit more. Of the main experience as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's such a, you know, then it it really, and it is sort of, you know, again, it's that, it's that thing I was talking about earlier where, you know, there's the fine dining, high end side of like lobster ravioli. Right. All these things you can do with this decadent, you know, expensive product because it is expensive, right? There's a lot that goes into catching it. There's a lot that goes into working with it as a chef. It doesn't show up ready. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, it doesn't show up ready to plate. Um, You know, but then on the other side of that, there is such an incredible, like, Value to the rustic opportunity of like eating it and taking it apart well, yourself with your hands. And that's, Are you really yeah, that's that's enjoying the, the lobster if um, you're not wearing it?
4: Right. I mean, <laughs> the juice dripping off your elbows. I mean, that's that's the part of the fun of eating it the traditional way. Yeah. And um, getting out
2: and for Have me, it. creating a dish in the restaurant. You know, for instance, um, it's a finer restaurant. The, the goal is to make food in the restaurant that people aren't going to make at home, but also ultra exciting. So when you when I create a dish in the restaurant, it has to be all of these elements that come together to make something beautiful and special and unique but to sit on a beach and eat a lobster right out of the shell like that or do something it's, it's the quintessential way uh, it's an expression of time and place yep. you know so it's, it's to experience that versus coming into my restaurant in the middle of Chicago smack dab in the center of the country
4: yeah.
2: you know it, it's two separate things but you still get that that, 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 that experience right that, that feeling of the product and not understanding where it came from so yeah.
3: So you know I mean obviously in the, in the restaurant world we've seen an explosion in the number of restaurants and chefs and people talking about these ingredients. Chris in the in the lobstermen world, have you seen I mean are there are there more lobstermen than there were when you were a kid? are there fewer? How is that how is the industry? So in
4: order to get into the main fishery as a lobsterman it's, it's a little bit of a challenge. So I started when I was young. Um, we have an apprenticeship program Uh, when you're under the age of uh, 18 you get a student license you can fish with the first year at being about 10 or 12 years old i can't remember the exact age you can have 10 traps and then 50 traps and then up to 150 and once you complete the apprenticeship program you become eligible to get a commercial lobster license Um, unless you and if you're over the age of 18 you have to go on a waiting list so there's only a certain number of fishermen in the state. can't recall it off the top of my head, around, I want to say about 6,000, I think, but that could yeah. be way off. Um, so there's probably a few less fishermen now than there was when I was a kid. Uh, kind of uh, like a 3 to 1, 5 to 1 ratio of lobster licenses go out before another one come in. I see. The student license program was to protect heritage and that families could stay in the fishery. So if my son or daughter wanted to fish, um, they had a little bit better chance of getting into the industry. And having completed their apprenticeship program, they were rewarded with a commercial lobster license of 300 traps. And then every year they could build up 100 until they got to 800. Oh, okay. So <clears throat> it goes back to the sustainability as well. We're not overfishing them because mm-hmm. we're not, you know, it's not increased effort. It's a uh, a little bit of maybe decreased effort, um, which is also not hurting our stock in our numbers every year.
3: Yeah. Um, do you see? I mean, are, are there are there other pressures on the fishery? I know, having eaten lobsters last summer in Rhode Island, the lobsters had these weird like pock marks on them that I'd never seen before. And I looked it up, and it's a it is a disease that is further south, as far as I understand it. It's currently in the kind of Long Island Sound area but is that something that is moving north and and I understand I forget what it was called but my understanding of it was it doesn't affect the meat at all
4: it doesn't affect the meat at all and it's also not transferable from what I understand hmm. so and if a lobster can shed his shell or her shell before it gets it, I guess it eventually might um, kill them. Mm-hmm. But if they can shed their shell before that, they can actually get away from it.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a bacteria or something? I forget yeah, the...
4: I don't know a lot about it. We yeah. see very little of it. Um, usually in the spring, if we're going to see it, we see a little bit. Um, but it doesn't affect the meat. It doesn't affect the lobster once he's shed. Yeah. Um, it's, it's it's really... I mean, it's in the back of our mind. as a potential problem. Sure. I, I don't know what the... Biologists and scientists are doing to maybe curb it, yeah. but um, it is something that's in the back of our mind that we have to worry about things like that. But as long as we can maintain what we're doing and say, you know, keep the stock healthy, yeah things should be good for years to come.
3: So I, I want to talk a little bit um, from you know, hear from each of you about you know, so someone who is not in Maine. Who can't go down to the dock and meet Chris, you know, two in the afternoon and get some lobsters from him. What is, as a consumer, what are things to look for? Because, you know, I imagine, especially with a live animal, that there are places that are going to do a better job of moving that around the country and distributing it and places that are going to do not a great job. And, you know, obviously there's a lot known and written about stress. On live animals that we're then going to eat so what are things you can do if you're going to go to a store and buy a lobster let's say you're in somewhere like chicago but you see them in the tank what, do you, what should you look for
4: so um you want them to be alive yeah uh, that's kind of a big yeah. deal <laughs> right. um, but as long as they're kept cool they're they're a really interesting creature uh they can live out of out of the water for a, uh, an extraordinary amount of time um, as long as they're kept in the proper proper temperatures i mean any any animal if you're expressed to an over amount of heat is not good for you um no different than with us but if they're kept in a cool area they'll they'll last up to days out of the water um so as long as they're kept cool once you buy them they'll be okay um or they're really fine um but things to look for is just Make sure you know the tanks clean when you're when you're buying them, and it's no different than a, a fish market shouldn't smell terribly like fish when right. you buy fish. <laughs> right. I mean that's just how you, you buy fish. Yeah. Um, but as long as they're alive and they look pretty healthy and they're moving around in good shape and the water was cold where they took them out of, if you keep them cool, you can put them in the crisper drawer in your refrigerator, and they'll last a couple of days. So, um, and that's pretty much the only thing I can think of off the top of my head.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I definitely would encourage people. If you have never cooked lobster at home, to do it right. I mean, it's, yeah, me, it's I mean, not it's, that hard. It's right?
2: not that hard at all. And, and the thing is, is too, is obviously if you're going to get a live lobster at your local grocery store, they have a tank there. You probably want to pick that lobster out the day you're going to cook it. I mean, it will last literally. I mean, we get them at the restaurant sometimes, and they'll come in and you keep them covered with seaweed or newspaper in that cooler, and they're they're alive two days later still. Sure. Um, but nonetheless, um, yeah, cooking them that day is is super important and. And as far as for cooking the lobster, there's endless techniques that you can apply to cooking it at home. So, yeah. Well, one thing we tell people, and uh, I get this sometimes,
4: people be like, "I don't know what I did wrong. I I killed the lobsters." And I said, "Well, what'd you do?" They said, "Well, I put them in water." Right. Well, a lot of people don't realize that they're breathing the oxygen in the water, and once the oxygen's gone, there's nothing left for them. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the other thing is they can't live in fresh water yeah <laughs> so people cover them in ice in a cooler and then and the then ice will, will melt yep. and they'll be in fresh water and they're no longer living when you go to get them so mm-hmm. that's a kind of a funny thing a lot of us from home they, we joke about they're like man people people just don't get it yep. but what it is is they just haven't been educated on yeah. it and we try to express that how what do we do with them until we get home just keep them cool but don't put them in water yeah.
3: so yeah. And I definitely recommend. So, if you're going to steam them, which, as we talked about earlier, is sort of the classic, e- easiest way to cook a lobster, um, steam them until the, the shell turns that uniform, like orange red. Uh, and then save the shells, is like the number one thing I would tell people is that, like, once you've picked all the meat out, whether you're picking them out to use them in a ravioli or make lobster rolls or whether you're just going to eat them, save all those shells and put them back into that water you steamed them in because they make a delicious stock. I mean, yeah. they just do. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, what a, you know, what a, e- even if you don't have any meat left i mean if you use that stock as a base for a chowder for even for like a corn chowder i mean it just, oh it's, it's amazing, amazing yeah.
2: rich. all the flavor you get out of there is, is second to none so
3: yeah well thank you guys it's been a real pleasure having you on Absolutely. feast your ears today i want to make sure to mention uh if you're in chicago uh check out Belmore. BelmoreChicago.com is where jimmy is cooking uh he you can follow him on instagram at jimmy Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, and on Twitter at jpapa24. Correct. Uh, you can follow what Chris is up to at uh, at fv underscore foolish pride. That's fishing vessel foolish pride. So that's Chris's boat. Uh, and you can also look at lobsterfrommain.com for more information about the fishery and, and information on how to cook it. Uh, do you guys have anything else you want to you want to mention? Anything else that you've got coming up related to lobsters? I assume Chris, you've got to get back to fishing. Well,
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm here till tomorrow. Um, we'll get back to work Wednesday. Cool. We'll we'll get back into full swing. But uh, a lot of people probably know why Jimmy Papa Dopp is his Instagram, but mine's named after my lobster boat, which when I was a kid, my grandfather used to tell me all the time my Foolish Pride was going to get the best of me. So uh, having him being a big influencer in my life um, when I got this boat, I said no better way to tribute than to kind of give it a little bit of his twist. So (laughs) Foolish Pride was how I came up with that name.
3: Excellent. Well, thank you guys again so much. Thank you for bringing the lobster to taste. It It was delicious. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Uh, don't forget to head over to heritageradionetwork.org/donate and support this and all the other great shows here on Heritage Radio Network. Check out sumostu.com, and if you miss this one, we have a Sumo Stew every other month. Uh, there are six sumo tournaments every year in Japan, and we have an event here in the states for every single one of them. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, network.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to like the show on uh, any of those platforms. You can reach out to me via email if you have any questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on social media at TheFoodBaller. Talk to you next week.